Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Uh, this is Stephen Brockwell. I'm here on behalf of the Ottawa International Writers Festival with the poet and writer Stuart Ross. Um, we're going to be talking about his new book, The Book of Grief and Hamburgers, uh, which has just come out from ECW Press. It's a fantastic uh, book, uh, very challenging, beautifully written, but full of Stuart Ross's typical humor and uh, insight. Um, so we're going to work through uh, his thoughts on how we came to write it and uh, the challenges of that. Before I do that, I'd like to acknowledge that we're, you know, um, living in a place that um, other people lived in generations before we came here, and that uh, to a large extent we've appropriated land uh, without any kind of compensation, sort of enforced treaties that were um, not necessarily uh, legal at the time and that we are you know, living in an indigenous place um, that uh, is still really unceded um, territory that uh, we should be mindful of in our daily actions. So with that, um, Stuart, you know, I think I discussed this with you a little bit before we got started. We're gonna go backwards a little bit through the book. Okay. One of the most stirring moments in it was um, the idea of like, the one little line is, I touched the dying which I personally remember doing as well with my mom and dad and my dog even. And um, I thought you did that uh, so beautifully. And I know it's a sort of intense, deeply moving part to start with, but I think it's a great place to start. Um, I wonder sure. if you can read that. Yeah, sure I will. When my mother was in the hospital, doped up on morphine, a nurse came into the room to give her an injection. She gave her the injection in her thigh. She pushed a piece of cotton batten against the injection site and asked me if I could hold it there for a few minutes so she could look after, look after other patients. I held two fingers against the cotton batten on my mother's bare thigh. I was touching my mother's bare thigh. I had never touched my mother like that before. She wasn't awake and she wasn't asleep. I feared being caught. On the television, a claymation penguin glided across the icy tundra. My mother would die a few days later, never waking from a coma she fell into or that was induced during surgery. When my father was in the hospital, the night before he died, I stood by his bed. He was doped up on morphine. He told me his legs, his arms, his shoulders felt numb. I reached behind his head and massaged his shoulders. I stroked his arms. I pulled the bed covers aside and kneaded his calves. I tried to get the blood to circulate in his legs. I didn't know that he would die the next day, that the next morning he would be in a coma. I was massaging my father's calves. He was awake but doped up. I had never touched my father like that before. My memory is that he was grateful. On this, the last full day of his life, 
he and I had a kind of contact we had never had before. I touched the dying. That sounds like the title of a Cornell Woolrich novel, or maybe Charles Williford. Charles the Williford wrote a novel called New Hope for the Dead. He was a lot more optimistic than I am. Thank you, Stuart. Um, you know, one thing I remember about that experience, and when I read this, what occurred to me was um, that there is one time in our lives when we touch our, touch our parents in that way, and it's when we're babies. And I just thought that was um, the memory it evoked in me, you know, and in our society, I think, oh, you bring this up earlier in the book too, touch is a sort of almost dangerous thing between people who are not intimate, if you yeah. know what I'm saying. So you, you mentioned earlier, if I'm not mistaken, about kissing, you know, there's certain male friends of yours that you're really close to that you hug and kiss, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you think yeah. they're related in any way like that sort of um, the sensibility behind that sort of timorous touching that you were doing with your dad, for example? And it, it was it, that's something I've I've never actually thought made a connection between those two things, a kind of touching that isn't sort of part of my daily life, isn't part of what I see as the relationship that I might have with the person. And the idea of touching my mother's thigh or my dad's calves is something that really in my whole life had never occurred to me that that could happen, might happen, would need to happen. And you're right, when we're, when we're babies, we're in contact with all sorts of um, parts of the, uh, you know, <laughs> of our parents' uh, bodies and they, with ours, um, as we're cradled and, and so forth, and as we're figuring out the world and figuring out what our body is and what the, that there are separate bodies around us, yeah. The kiss falls into that category of, in a sense, unexpected, slightly unusual for me. Right. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a very, very different thing to touch somebody who's dying, yeah. um, to give them comfort in a way that you, or in a place that you didn't ever expect to touch them mm -hmm. and to express the specialness of a friendship um, with someone who's not a romantic partner uh, through a kiss. Right. And I think they're very different, but maybe there is some kind of a crossover between those two things. Like the crossover for me was sort of related to culture and just the way you know, male, male, you know, gendered bodies kind of like there's resistance to sort of public expressions of physical affection and just touching in general in our society, if it's not in the context of, uh, you know, more intimate relationships, you know what I mean? Like at a certain point when you're a parent, you stop, you know, touching, you have hugs, but you know, like it, it, you, the physical distance gets greater. But I think that's in our, our culture. I don't think that's in every culture, you know, that that kind of, there's a, I don't think in every culture there's that boundary of the body that is, you know, that makes us feel nervous or anxious about touching either the living or the dead in, in you know, kind of physical ways that are not intimate. You know, you know what I'm saying? I just, that's really what I was sort of trying to point out, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, a little earlier, 
And this was striking. It's a tough, uh, tough one, uh, you know, but I'd like to know more about it because it's like, you know, one of the shortest pages in the book, um, but it's, you know, about your brother Owen and your brother Barry. And um, just, uh, you know, you were saying it was difficult to write those two lines on page 101 there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll read the lines. What did Owen think about as he lay on the floor? What did Barry think about as he lay on the floor? I, 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 those two lines about my two brothers, my brother Owen, who was the middle brother, he died first about 20 years um, before Barry died. Barry died on uh, June 2nd, 2020, near the beginning of the pandemic. They both died suddenly. They both basically collapsed onto the floor. My brother Barry in his kitchen and my brother Owen um, in his bedroom just outside the bathroom. The, the shower was still running in the bathroom. And I think it's partly that as I think more and more about my own mortality and think about mortality in general, I wonder what people think <laughs> when they know these are the last moments of their life. Um, and I guess there's all sorts of differences in both of these cases. These two men didn't know that was going to be the last moment of their life, though. I suspect, at least in Barry's cases, he knew that it could be coming. Mm. But you were lying inert, unable to move. Do you think of anything? What do you think? And I, I, I have no conjecture. Right, yeah. I, I wonder, and I, I contrast that with, um, you know, Nelson Ball, uh, dear, dear friend, one of Canada's greatest poets, certainly one of Canada's greatest minimalist poets and nature poets, who I became very, very close to. And I was in the room in the hospital with him, along with his friends, Catherine and Susan, when he uh, received his medically assisted death. And what I wondered and what I almost wanted to ask him, he said that we could, we could come in for 15 minutes. We could have had a party for three hours. They said, you could bring in booze, drugs, you can do whatever you want. This guy's dying. You know, we just, we turn a blind eye, you can do whatever you want, but he just chose to have us in at 12.45 to 1 p.m. and uh, before the procedure. And I woke up that morning and I thought, Nelson's waking up this morning. Presumably he slept, probably had a bit of a drugged out sleep. He wakes up knowing that this is going to be his very last day of a, of a life that I guess he was about 78 years old. Um, and a very full life and a very thoughtful life and a very a life full of meditation, intense interest in all sorts of things, intellectual and natural and, and human. And um, what what did he think about when he woke up that morning? Was he worried? Was he scared? Was he at peace? Did he choose to think about his wife of 45 years, Barbara Crusoe? the artist who died a decade earlier. Um, so I think what happens in these things is I put myself sort of almost into that person's position. And I think, what would I think if I was waking up and I knew this was going to be the last day of my life? And in fact, 
I only, I was going to die in three hours and 12 minutes or whatever, <laughs> uh, in the case of Nelson, when he knew. And also, what about Barry and Owen? As they lay there, if if there was any, if they had any consciousness for any period of time after they fell to the floor, what what did they think? And I I, I meditate on that a lot, and I I don't know, of course, the answer. I'll never know the answer. Yeah, yeah. I'll only know my own answer when the time comes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, the part that I was interested in was uh, what you said about it. You know, it was tough to write, and that it was. Um, you know, you had, you thought you had to, you know, just put those two really simple lines down. Um, yeah, there are things, there are things, and maybe that's one of the moments where the, the metaphorical hamburgers didn't um, come floating down from heaven to save me. I guess we'll talk about that a bit too. Yeah. But um, I, um, I felt that if I wrote those lines, that I was very frightened to write those two lines together. Um, it would get me over something it would allow me to overcome something or accept something or just put when i wrote the two lines and i realized those are the only two lines that will be on this page um that those two lines became something for me to meditate on or maybe there was something so small that they were something i might be able to accept i'm not really sure what i thought yeah. i wrote those lines or what I think about them now, but you're right. Those are, those are very tough lines to, to look at and to also speak about. Yeah. Um, going further back, um, you know, I know you've had really close relationships with a lot of writers. I mean, and one of them uh, would be David McFadden as well. Yeah. And there's a beautiful, um, you know, kind of just memoir of, uh, you know, David's, last moments and his um, ashes and where they ended up on page 77. And um, I wonder if you might want to read that. Sure. Yeah, Dave, I'll just mention that Dave McFadden was incredibly pivotal to me as a writer because I, I stumbled upon his books. It was either A Night and Dried Plums or um, On the Road Again, one of those books, I think, uh, of, the, of the 70s. I stumbled upon it when I was a teenager. And I was uh, playing hooky from my alternative school, which I guess it's an alternative school, so I wasn't really <laughs> playing hooky. But I went down the road in uh, Young Street, or up up Young Street, went to the public library one afternoon, and I found one of these books on the shelf. I think it was A Night in Dried Plums, and I was intrigued by the ridiculous title, and I pulled it off the shelf, and I'd never heard of this guy, and I flipped it open, and this this writing, I mean, I'd, I'd read a lot of E.E. E. Cummings, I'd read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe, I'd read a lot of Stephen Crane, but I'd never read anyone who just sounded like you're sitting across from them in a room in big armchairs, and he was just telling you a story. And it was magical, it was strange, it was hilarious, and maybe it was about death or murder or jealousy or racism, something very serious, but it was conversational and it had humor in it, and that was probably the most pivotal thing for me as a as a very young writer and I I met David in my early 20s when he moved to Toronto from Hamilton and got to know him a little bit and then as uh, we both aged I got to know him more in my 30s and 40s and by my 50s uh, I was or maybe it was my late 40s I was editing his books I edited his selected poems his collected long poems and then five more four more books of his poetry 
um, and uh, and a, a travelogue that he did and that he had written on a trip with his dad to England decades earlier. And he was a mystical, funny, charming, mischievous guy who would say the most uncomfortable, blunt things in the worst possible circumstances. And so I think a lot of people were sort of horrified by him at times. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if what he was doing was um, they were sort of a, a, a test of humans. What, what, what could humans tolerate, put up with? How can humans make their minds work in ways that they don't normally make? So he'd say very disorienting and sometimes inappropriate um, things at the strangest times. And so I think that connects to the cookie jar thing that comes up in this section. Uh, Dave had Alzheimer's um, and uh, he had a, you know, a, a decline of several years. And I, I didn't visit him often enough in the hospital, but I, I did visit him a few times. The last time I saw Dave McFadden, he was lying on his side in his hospital room, facing the window, asleep. He remained asleep for my entire visit. Dave is the author of On the Road Again, Poems Worth Knowing, What's the Score, A Night in Dried Plums, the Oviogas, shouting your name down the well. Why are you so sad? Be calm, intense pleasure. Sorry, be calm, honey, intense pleasure, and many others. Those are just the poetry books. Dave arranged with his wife, the wonderful painter and singer, Merlin Homer, to have his ashes put in a Dilbert cookie jar. They found one on the internet, but it was missing its lid. Merlin, who was wry and brilliant and loving, put one of Dave's caps on the jar in lieu of a lid. The last time Dave ever gave a reading was the day Laurie and I married. His Alzheimer's had already taken a toll on him, but with Merlin's slender hand resting gently on his back, Dave quietly and slowly read five of his haiku about love. This is one of them. Love to feel your warm, breath in the crook of my arm. Either arm will do. And then Merlin, who was Mohawk, sang a suite of traditional songs about wooing and marrying. Her strong, rich voice filled the banquet room at Victoria Hall. Dave looked on, proud and adoring. At Dave's memorial service, the Dilbert cookie jar that he and Merlin bought online rested on a small table in front of the congregation. Dave was always a joker. This was Dave's last joke. The, I'm so glad there's a picture of that there too. Yeah, and there's a picture of um, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the Dilbert cookie jar with one of those kind of Andy Cap caps. Yeah. Um, um, on his head, and in the back, you see this um, sort of a cathedral-like uh, view. <laughs> one of the things with details I didn't include, mainly because I didn't want to go that far into it, but also I don't know all the technical aspects of things. I don't want to offend anyone was. So it was a pretty religious um, funeral, which I think Dave would have been surprised by, but it was important for Merlin. And there were those guys wearing the, the long gowns and they have like a big uh, cross over their shoulder and they're swinging some thing on a chain that's burning. And yeah. 
incense, is that what it is? Incense. And they, they walk up the aisle and they kneel down in front of a Dilbert cookie jar wow. at the front of the, um, the church. And it was both moving and absolutely hilarious and absurd at the same time. And I think it would, I imagine that maybe Dave even pictured that that was what was going to happen at his, at his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. stupid to search my poetry books for hamburgers <laughs> like and you search other books for hamburgers and you find that some books about death and grieving have burgers but not hamburgers and you know these <laughs> kinds of things but you know the whole kind of um and I, I won't imply that it's systematic but it, it is actually in some ways now upon reflection i think that you've done on this systematic like the, the sort of hamburger kind of ethos or aesthetic that is sort of you know th this evasive action um that you take and you know you say in the book that you don't use metaphors and then you sort of call it a metaphorical hamburger right in a way the so, <laughs> so the the hamburger the hamburger tell me about the hamburger so the hamburger i don't i find hamburgers funny for some reason i find the word hamburger funny and i find putting a hamburger in something as uh, profound and sublime as a poem to be a funny thing. And I found that in my teens and into my 20s, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, um, banquet burgers would show up in my poems. And a then friend of mine, a very, very close friend, a poet, who's a very renowned Canadian poet now, um, said to me, every time you are writing something serious, you're getting towards something serious, you throw a hamburger in because you just you, you want to avoid the serious thing. I don't know that I agreed with him, but it always stuck with me. And, and then I saw things like, I realized that in the ends of poems, I would throw in Frank Sinatra or onion rings or big disposable razors. And I think I gradually realized as maybe as I was putting together this book, but I think I was realizing it that those things all were a kind of hamburgers in a way they were something that would make people laugh but i also think that it's important when talking about serious things to make people laugh and that was something that i learned from dave mcfadden um but great <laughs> and then i realized that my first my first memory of of a connection with art with actual art aside from like hearing, um, you know, Tennyson's uh, Charge of the Light Brigade made a couple of years earlier, it was when I was six years old, I think I was, and my mother took me to the Art Gallery of Ontario. And on display there, it was pristine at the time. It was beautiful. The paint was all, wasn't cracked. It was, was the huge fiber art sculpture by Klaus Oldenburg called Floorburger. And I was this little six-year-old kid, and there was this hamburger three times my height, uh, towering over me, uh, the pickle was on top, which is strange. You'd think the pickle would be on side, but I believe the pickle was on top and there was a little bit of mustard dribbling from the sides. It was all made of painted fabric. And it was like a hamburger. 
a hamburger is in an art gallery. A hamburger can be a piece of art. And it was this astonishing thing. And um, I don't know that I ever made the connection between hamburgers popping into my poems to save the day and avoid me from perhaps talking about some of the more visceral things and this incredible Klaus Oldenburg hamburger that made me realize, I, I guess it was the piece, first piece of pop art that I had ever seen, that popular culture can appear in something that is also serious art. Um, but here, I'll, I'll, I'll read that, that page. It's a short page. Um, and it evokes four people in this short page that were incredibly, incredibly important to me, one of whom is still living and is and continues to be incredibly important to me. Um, it's stupid to search my poetry books for hamburgers, though I bet there is a hamburger in one of Ron Paget's poems. How could there not be? And Tom Clark has a Vomburger in one of his poems in At Malibu. I have loved Tom Clark's poetry since I was a teenager. I mentioned that to my friend Wa Win. She gave me his email address and told me I should tell him. I got up the nerve and did it. He wrote me back a short note and thanked me. He once posted my New Year's poem on his blog. In August 2018, he was hit by a car. He died the next day. The only two men who kissed me when we said goodbye after a visit were Robin Wood and Michael Dennis. I kissed them back. In Robin's case, through his beard. They both drank a bottle of wine with every dinner. It's interesting to read this now, Stephen, because one of the things that happened in this book was I didn't question the connections my mind was making. I didn't try to tie things together. And I see that um, the first three paragraphs about the burgers, and then suddenly I'm talking about men who kissed me when we said mm -hmm. goodbye. And I am looking at it now, and I have no idea why that fourth paragraph is on this particular page but i'll go with it you know i was yeah. just letting my mind leap around at times but robin wood was um a film professor of mine at york university huge i i, I sometimes talk about him as being the biggest influence on my life um aside from my mom um the way i read the way i watch film so much the way i think um is a result of the influence and conversations with, with Robin Wood, who wrote the, the first great um, serious study of Alfred Hitchcock in the English language. Um, and Michael Dennis, dear, dear um, poet friend, dear, dear friend yeah. of mine in Ottawa, in your city, who was a poet and who I knew for 40 years and who's part of, whose own terrible prognosis in the spring twenty. 20 was the reason really that I started writing this book and Tom Clark, a poet who I idolized from my teenage days. Um, and then finally, you know, 40 years later, wrote him a little email note and we had a little bit of an exchange and then he died. Um, very, very tragic. He was, I think, uh, close to 80, stepped out into the street, hit by a car Jesus. and he was gone. And then um, I talk about, Ron Paget here briefly, he is still alive. And he, along with Dave McFadden, were probably the, the two most pivotal writers for me. First, there was Dave McFadden. And then I discovered Ron Paget's poetry as a teenager. And it was more absurd, more surreal than Dave's. Um, and, and was also just a huge influence on me. And Ron's uh, a friend now. And 
continues to always be a great influence on me. So I don't know how I, I, I leapt from talking about burgers and hamburgers in books to talking about kissing Robin Wood and Michael Dennis, but I'll stand behind it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think though, you know, it's actually, it's interesting because, you know, often you end a poem with a hamburger, right? Here you start, well, this little piece with oh. a hamburger, but that's part of that sort of somewhat more systematic uh, kind of clever, sneaky ethos or, you know, kind of that, you know, you're beginning with the absurd and then you get to something really, really kind of intimate and deep and beautiful, right? Like that, that part for me about the kiss, that's why I brought it up earlier in relationship to touching. Yeah. Really, really beautiful. And, you know, you have this, and I mentioned this to every, in every workshop I give, and I don't give a lot of poetry workshops, but I love giving them. And when I do, you know, your meaning schmeaning workshop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I just love that. And I've always believed that, right? Like that you, you know, your, your purpose in a poem is not to tell someone something or to advertise your knowledge or whatever. It's to sort of um, explore your thoughts, your words, and the words have their own sort of uh, direction, right? You know, sound and everything that's happening. So I don't know. I, they, it open when you don't think about poetry as in a sort of uh, kind of uh, didactic way or something to tell someone or teach someone something. Yeah. All of these sort of possibilities open up. You know, so it's kind of cool that this begins with the absurdity and gets to, you know, really touching, beautiful intimacy, actually. You so know, the hamburger is, is not always an evasion. It's actually in this one, it's actually like an entry point into something, you know, it's, uh, it's neat. You know, one of the greatest things that almost makes me cry, um, thinking about one of the greatest things about um, for me about being a writer is for people to find things in my writing that I didn't know were there someone to point something out and I look at this now and you you make that comment and I go god if I had deliberately consciously crafted this page so that was what happened I'd be so proud of myself but in a sense I'm more proud that it came out of my unconscious because you're right that's exactly what's happening on this tiny page of four paragraphs and I, I didn't realize it until now <laughs> yeah well it's you know it's what happens when you sort of um, open yourself up to sort of not being too serious i think you know you get ultra serious wow um yeah so anyway that's uh I, I love that page and you know i loved michael dennis you know one of my biggest regrets i i i have um difficulty you know just sort of following up with friends i you know i kind of grew up an only child and you know I've got some weird background stuff that just makes relationships tough for me sometimes you know okay and Michael was one of those people that I would spend kind of one afternoon per year kind of in his office you know yeah. just exchanging stories looking at his books reading stuff talking about other poets and another thing I did which I didn't do for almost any other uh, writer was every time I had a book ready to go and you've probably seen this I make little mock-ups of it as yeah yeah you know, like just cut the paper and you know align it and everything like that Great. yeah so he had you know I think three like the last three books that I had done he had a little like in his library somewhere there's a hand stapled because I for some reason you know uh he liked my work a lot and he was very very generous with me and you know I just you know I just regret so much not spending more time with them like I look at my um 
you know, your Facebook Messenger conversations, right? Yeah. And, you know, my, uh, they're still there. For the last time I checked, I mean, I'm off Facebook, but, um, you know, and there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these interactions with him over the 10 or 11 or 12 years I've been on Facebook, I guess. And uh, I just, but I didn't, I didn't spend enough time with him in his presence, you know what I mean? Like in his kitchen, you know, that beautiful kitchen, that little table. Yeah. Right? Um, I just, uh, yeah, I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, anyway, just a regret, you know, and I know how close you folks were and you know, like your collaborative poems, which, you know, you could mention, you mentioned them here a little bit, but um, you know, that without the, the, you know, 70 kippers, um, that was just a beautiful kind of tribute to the relationship the two of you had. Uh, anyway, he was a beautiful, beautiful writer. Um, beautiful writer, like just the way he, you know, in a way he didn't really, he had absurd things once in a blue moon, but for the most part, it was just direct, total truth telling, open with himself, observant of other people, but, you know, never concerned. His craft was in the simplicity and the kind of directness, not in some sort of, you know, flowery kind of, you know, was not uh, show, it was never a show off in his poems. They were just direct. Absolutely. I mean, he was, he was really influenced by Alperti and also by Charles Bukowski. And maybe a lot of people compare his poems to Charles Bukowski, but one of the things that doesn't happen in Michael's poetry is his poetry was not about self-mythologizing. Right. Um, which I think Alperti's was all about, the swaggering, womanizing, self-mythologizing asshole, which he yeah. took such pride in being. And I think Michael, in a sense, maybe he was a bit like Nelson Ball. Uh, Nelson Ball wrote poems. You know, he tried to write the most objective poems to observe nature and things mm -hmm. around him. And in a sense, I think Michael was um, trying in all those hundreds or maybe thousands of poems he wrote to just communicate was what he was observing though he did get he got a bit more judgmental at times and that mm -hmm. was uh, in life and in his poetry and I should mention on the topic of Michael I mean for one thing I, I do want to say is that I spend a lot of time with Michael I was so lucky to spend a lot of time with Michael um, but I really really wish I had spent more time with Michael and I I think now that he's gone of all the conversations I wanted to ask him all the things I wanted to say to him all the things I wanted to hear him tell me about that we never really got around to, or we might have, and I've just forgotten. But I'll mention that in the spring of 2020, um, a few weeks after the pandemic was declared, um, I got a, in fact, I was right down here in the basement of my home and the phone rang and it was Michael. And he said, Stuart, I'm gonna tell you something and I don't want any response. And then we're gonna hang up and we'll talk more later. I was. I just come back from the hospital. I have uh, pancreatic liver cancer and I have maybe six to nine months to live. And I just said, I love you. And that was, um, that was the whole conversation, the shortest conversation Michael and I ever had. But it was important for him to tell me. And I, I was really honored by that. And uh, so over the next months, um, in addition to trying to achieve help achieve some things for Michael and for the rest of us really I'm like making sure his last book um, low center of gravity 
his last solo book of poetry got through Anvil Press while he could still hold a copy. And then deciding to publish 70 Kippers, the collaborative poems we had written over several years, absurd collaborative poems that, like you say, I really see as a testament to a friendship and a love. And make sure that he got to hold that and, and help um, Dogti Stromsvog, the Norwegian poet who had translated um, dozens of Michael's poems and really admired his work, um, help him uh, publish this uh, bilingual short selected poems, um, Japanese Ghosts and Taxis, um, published in Trondheim, Norway. And Michael got to hold that book. But around September, as Michael, I knew that Michael wouldn't be around that much longer. And my brother had died on June the 2nd. And that was a, a huge, of course, a huge, huge blow. And my brother's death, Michael's impending end, I was just trying to figure out a way to get through this. And I don't normally, I never normally have written for catharsis or therapy or to get my emotions out. Yeah. I hate the idea of no, I'm writing to get my emotions out. Who the fuck cares about your emotions? But as a, an act of, uh, you know, uh, I was going to say self-preservation, but it wasn't that. An, an, an act of coping, I decided I would write this book. I had just read uh, reread a couple of books by the American writer Amy Fusselman, essayist and memoirist, very experimental, very amazing writer. And the structure of her books suddenly suggested to me the way I could write about this stuff. And I don't know how the hamburgers got into it, but I immediately <laughs> wrote the title, The Book of Grief and Hamburgers, maybe because I was already preparing to evade everything I was going to talk about. And in September, I started writing and I, I wrote and wrote and it's not a long book. It's only about 100 pages. But I I was determined to write the book while Michael was still alive so that Michael is a living person in the book. It wasn't a, a memories of Michael. And uh, I, I did finish the book a few days before Michael died. And I, I never showed him the book, but I, I told him that the book, I, I showed him a, a manuscript page which said, For Michael Dennis, which did turn into in memory of Michael Dennis when the book came out, but with a little epigraph by him underneath it, um, which is something he said to me in it's either our first, our, our last or our second last conversation over the phone while he was dying. He said, we are the lucky men. And I got to show him uh, that page. And I think he was moved by it as much as he could care about it at a time like that. Um, but I was glad to have shown him that, but I didn't really want him. To, I was sort of glad that he wouldn't read the book, to be right, honest. Right. To be honest. Yeah. You know, I mean, I miss him like you do, nowhere near to the degree you would. But I mean, he was just, a, you know, incredible presence in Ottawa. But also, you know, his blog where he reviewed how many, like a thousand or more books of poetry with just such an open, warm attitude and gave a little bit of light to so many people who, you know, often, you know, books don't get reviews, poetry books, um, but he gave them, you know, really insightful, thoughtful, warm regard. He just loved poetry so much, you know, and he loved everything. He was really so open. Um, well, it's interesting, right? Cause he was, he was a, he could be a grumpy guy. Yep. He could be cantankerous. 
Um, he was very, very opinionated, but, and that was one side of him. And he was also such a generous and loving and caring guy. He cared about you so much that he would call you an, you know, a jerk for things you were doing because he cared about you so much and he wanted you to recognize jerk is probably not the word he would use, but realize <laughs> You realize what you're, you know, he would just, he yeah. would be brutal at times. And it was, it was good. It was good for me over our lifetime, but he also had this incredible generosity. And when he decided he didn't have a lot of money, he didn't make much money and he really wanted more and more poetry. And his friend, Christian McPherson, I think it was uh, another Ottawa poet novelist suggested to him, why don't you do a blog in which you review books and then, and then invite all these publishers to send you books. And he started it up. He was a Luddite. Christian sent up his set up his uh, his blog today's book of poetry, and uh, Michael, oh my God, how many phone calls did I get? Where he got, I got three packages today. Here's two <laughs> presses I've never even heard of in the United States, and also some stuff from you know this press in Canada. And he and days that he didn't get any package, ah, shitty day, no packages in the mail. But he went through all the books and he got thousands and thousands of books over the eight years he did his blog, and he only wrote about books that he really liked. And I, I remember debating this with him. I said, you know, wouldn't you have more credibility if you, um, you know, were critical of some of the books or wrote about some of the books that you thought were pieces of crap and why they're pieces of crap. And he said, you know, there's only so much space for poetry. There's only so much time for me to write. Why do I want to waste my time on things that I don't like? Maybe other people will like them. I just want to write about what I like and what I want other, what I'm excited about other people reading as well. And so every two days or two to three days for eight years, he wrote, he didn't call them reviews. He called them appreciations or he just called them blogs yeah. um, um, about books that he, he loved. And it, it was challenging for him because how many different ways can you say, I love this book. Um, and sometimes he found that a struggle and sometimes he came up with the most fresh way of saying it. It was, it was amazing. And, and it was such an act of, of generosity but at the same time, it was a way that he could, he who could not afford a lot of poetry books could build a huge book library. Yeah. You know, I'll just talk about, you know, the, my experience is something like that for a moment. Just Peter Van Turen passed away, yeah. you know, last year as well. And um, it's another one of those things where a lot of people, because he was, um, you know, a very difficult person for a lot of people. You know, he was you know, like you said, cantankerous, but I mean, he could be very aggressively cantankerous and um, nonlinear and really seem incoherent at times. But I knew him from, you know, I, my first class at Sejep was a class with him. And um, I remember him shuffling down the hall. All you could hear is these shuffling steps. And then you heard this voice reading something very strange, which turned out to be the book of Ezekiel. He walked into the class he sat wow. down, he read the entire book of Ezekiel, slammed it shut, said, now that's fucking poetry, and shuffled right back out. That was it. That was, that was, that was the, my, and you know, like that's amazing. about 80% of the class was totally appalled and probably complained, and a lot of people complained about him, but yeah. I was just absolutely riveted. And, you know, um, James Hawes, another you know, poet that you know, and who is really a dear friend of Peter's and was with him 
very often until the end. I got to see Peter, you know, at least once, you know, as he was uh, in very, very rapidly declining health. But I mean, I had these beautiful conversations with him, you know, that were just, he, he could be so kind and gentle and um, mm. wow, caring. And uh, I just really cherish that, um, that relationship. So I have some idea of, you know, how the kind of closeness that you had with Michael. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a privilege really to have that kind of thing, even once in your life, I think actually I have to say, um, you know, I guess maybe could both of us have gone through this, not recently for you in a sense, but the death of a pet is a shockingly persistent thing. You know, I lost my dog uh, about 16 years, Nico, um, just around New Year's. And you yeah. lost Lily, who, you know, has there's that beautiful image at the back that you um, talk about, you know. Yeah. And just um, maybe reflect on that a little bit, just to sort of this sort of, you know, how Lily was sort of involved in this uh, as well. Yeah, I think Lily doesn't come up till the end of the book. I can't remember if she 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 comes up. So Lily was a little dog that uh, Laurie and I uh, adopted um, from a rescue in Cornwall in 2010. And she died a few years younger than her breed would usually die. She got lymphoma in uh, spring 2018, I believe it was. And um, and I was. I I adored that dog so much. I adored Lily. She adored us so much. And she got me out, out of the house. I live in this little town, Coburg, which I'm I feel very mixed about living here. But she got me out there walking and walking the streets every day, uh, at least a couple of times a day. And she just lived for joy so much of the time. And it was a beautiful thing for a sad sack like me to be with this little creature. <laughs> Who um, who just uh, it just had so much joy about things. Um, but her last few months were pretty tough, and she was still though, um, you know, looking for joy and and barking and 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 guarding our house <laughs> um, until the very end, even as she was um. You know, as her body was sort of st stopping functioning properly, uh, bit by bit, um, and we, you know, I'm glad when we finally uh, took her to that last visit to the vet, we didn't wait too long, and uh, and we actually we took her for a little picnic that day, and uh, we gave her uh, actual sausage, which she was <laughs> like, "What? What the hell are you doing? Sausage? This is amazing!" And then uh, some guy. And his son went walking by in a path near where we were sitting in this park. And Lily ran so fast. She'd become very heavy at this point because of the med medication she was on. And she went whipping after uh, this man and his son barking and barking to protect us. And and, and then we took her to the vet. And uh, it was like she knew. We sat out in the backyard at the vet. I said, we don't want to go in because she hates going in here. And they said, well, we'll set you up in the backyard on a blanket. And Lori sat down and Lily crawled into Lori's lap and lay there after running around a bit in the, the backyard behind the vet. And, and then uh, soon there was no more Lily, um, at least not a corporeal version of Lily. 
And I, it was, it was so powerful. The loss of Lily was so difficult and powerful. I felt this is, this is worse than the death of my, my mother, of my father, of the brother who had died by this point. This is the worst death that I've experienced. The worst loss, I should say, that I've experienced. And I think about my mom, especially pretty much every day. I think about my dad so much, about Owen and Barry. When I walk out the door to just go walk down the street or walk anywhere in Coburg, I always think I wish that Lily was on a leash and tugging on the leash that I was holding. And uh, I just miss her so much. And I, I don't know if part of it is that does a dog understand what's happening to them? Does, does Lily know that this is her last day? Does Lily know that these are her last days? Or does she just know that something different is happening with her physically and she just tries to adapt to it? But there's something about that innocence of a, a little pooch or a big pooch like your beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Um, uh, sort of moving towards the end. And maybe it's a blessing that perhaps they don't think. Yeah. Death. I don't know the concept of death. Who knows? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I couldn't believe the grief that I felt when Nico died. You know, I mean, I really yeah. couldn't believe it. Uh, just, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, just, um, I don't know why. I, I really, I don't know why um, it is as deep as it is. And as, uh, like, I haven't been able to get rid of his bed you know yeah I didn't notice it's just, that one. it's just very strange i don't uh and you know like you say i mean i still see him sometimes weird like i'll come into the house there's a little you know thing a little cabinet that has some glass in it and i'll see his reflection it's the strangest thing and i just um yeah yeah you know you mentioned the image in the back of the book there's an image of of, of lily that's a piece of art made by a guy um in uh, near Detroit, Michigan, a guy named John A. Betley. I know him only online because of a Randy Newman listserv we both belong <laughs> to. And he is also um, a guy who just, you know, who has, I think he has a dog or two dogs now and loves dogs and has loved dogs for so long. And he saw on Facebook, you know, that Lily was, that Lily had died. And it was maybe a couple of months later he said i have a big package for you coming your way and i opened this package from this guy in detroit who i have never met and it's this two foot by three foot beautiful beautiful um ceramic slash painting um multimedia piece uh, of lily taken from a photograph of her that was on facebook and elements of my book covers put into it and it is the most beautiful thing and i think that people who who have dogs that love them and who love dogs um often know the bond is so so intense that john who's a school teacher i believe not a professional artist but a great artist spent must have spent hours and hours and used tons of material to create this piece yeah. to comfort laurie and me and give us something to remember lily by and man it captures lily so perfectly mm. and uh you know, it's above our TV in our living room. And sometimes I think that's a perfect place for it to be because we get to see her all the time. And sometimes I think I don't want to be reminded of her all of right, the time. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I totally can understand how I'm not totally, I mean, I, to such a large degree, I can understand about how, about the impact of the death of, of Nico on you. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, it's a perfect place to end a conversation about a book of grief and hamburgers. <laughs> Nico loved hamburger, just so you know. Um, <laughs> just adored it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, I think it's a beautiful book. Um, it is, you know, available now. I've already bought copies for other people. Um, and, um, you know, the thing about it that I thought was most beautiful when I got to the end of it anyway, is it, it's, it's not so much about grief itself as about living and, you know, being alive. Cause you know, like the ability to touch people, the ability to kind of celebrate people and to, it's a, it's a book about an attitude towards living, to be honest with you. And my, 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 my feeling about it is, and I, I think it's uh, just an exceptional piece of work you know i mean it's beautifully written of course but um this is particularly good um writing just the writing is uh anyway it's excellent um Thank you so much Stephen. i really really appreciate that and this idea that you know when i wrote it i thought is this just a big book of self i didn't think of it as a book i, I thought of it as a just you know i was writing i yep. thought is this the big overload of self-pity and should you know anyone else in the world ever see it and to think that you see it as a celebration of life is really, that's pretty meaningful to me. So thanks for that. Well, thank you. And thanks for your time here um, with, uh, you know, the Ottawa Writers Festival podcast. And um, we'll take care and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Stephen. That was Stephen Brockwell in conversation with Stuart Ross about the book of grief and hamburgers. It's a beautiful book, and I'm grateful to have read it. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.